How does a cardiologist approach blood pressure? How should you check it? How do you know if it's elevated? What you should do and what medications to use? So this is one of my favorite topics. Obviously, the one of the biggest things that we get in cardiology is people coming in for blood pressure problems. So first of all, you have to make sure that they actually have a blood pressure problem. And the way to do that is by getting blood pressure measurements. A lot of patients will have elevated blood pressures in the office, but not elevated blood pressures at home. So a lot of times they'll come in and say, doc, I don't know what's going on. When I come to see you, my pressure seems so high, but when I'm at home, they're normal. Or like, you know, at the other doctor's offices, they're normal. That, they, we call that sometimes white coat syndrome. And especially if you're a cardiologist, people are generally not that excited to see you. They're a little nervous. Their blood pressure is running a little higher. Sometimes we see it as high as like 15, maybe even 30 points higher than what it actually is, which is pretty high, obviously. So you want to make sure that it actually is high. And what we usually do is tell them to get a blood pressure cuff and check their pressures at home. The way you do that is you sit down, wait about three to five minutes, make sure you're not distracted. You're not on the phone. You're not having angry conversations. You're not looking at your phone. You're not talking on your phone. You're not watching TV. You're not watching a scary movie. You're sitting at rest, you know, for at least three to five minutes. Then check your blood pressure with your blood pressure cuff. Now, the ones that inflate on your arm, you know, bicep are usually better than the ones on the wrist, but just pick one. You can always bring it in and we can calibrate it to the one in the office that's a manual blood pressure. The automated cuffs are pretty good at getting a general blood pressure. They're not as accurate as a manual cuff, but also is user dependent. The problem with manually somebody blowing up the cuff and listening to your arteries is that they have to actually know what they're doing. Whereas the automated cuffs, you press a button and it gives you your blood pressure. So they're a lot more, let's say, reliable or reproducible. Let's put it that way. You check it a few times, it's going to give you the same numbers. Now, obviously, the more often you check your blood pressure, the more it's going to go up, especially if you irritate the vessels by inflating it, then deflating it, then doing it again over and over again, you're going to get inaccurate readings. So let's talk about now, when do you treat blood pressure? So first of all, the neurological societies and cardiac societies have all said, especially the, the neuro and the stroke people have said, normal blood pressure is 115 over 75. It's been like that for decades. It's not anything new. This does not mean we treat anything over that. We'll get to that part. But 115 over 75 is normal. For every 20 over 10, higher than that, your risk of stroke doubles. So if you add 20 to the top number and 10 to the bottom number, so you end up with 135 over 85, your rate of stroke doubles. If you end up with 155 over 95, now it's quadruple, you know, so on and so forth. Keep adding 20 and 10, keep, you know, going up to 2, 4, 8, I don't know, 16, whatever. Your rate of stroke and even heart attacks obviously goes up significantly the higher your blood pressure. Now, we generally don't treat blood pressure unless it's sig unless it's consistently over 140. We say up to about 139 is, you know, the pre-hypertension or whatever. We generally don't treat it unless you're consistently over 140. So if you've had multiple readings of 140, you probably need to be treated. Now, for me personally, this is my approach. A lot of it sort of depends on what other medical conditions you, you have or don't have. But in general, here's what we would do. Someone comes in with pressures always running in the 140s to 155 range. My first approach, or anybody that's elevated, now if they're like super elevated in the 200s, 180s, it's a different story. But let's talk about somebody who's just above the normal limits. They're otherwise eating healthy. We told them to eat a low salt diet, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Basically, a low salt diet would be like the healthiest diet for blood pressure is a DASH diet. 
forget what it stands for. Dietary something, sodium, hypertension. I don't know. The dietary way to fix your blood pressure problems. Hypertension. Um, it's basically eat a Mediterranean-style diet, which I've talked about a million times, as well as lower your sodium intake. We usually tell people to eat less than 2 grams a day of sodium, sometimes 1.5 if you're a high heart failure patient. just kind of depends, kidney issues, what have you. But for the most people, if you're under 2.5 or 2.2 grams a day, you're probably fine. Assuming you don't have heart failure or you know other conditions. So those are your dietary approaches to um, lowering your hypertension. Oh, I think that's what it stands for. D-A-H, D-A-S-H, dash diet. Dietary approaches to something hypertension, right? Maybe fixing or, you know, whatever. Um, but either way, that would be a good diet. Start with a Mediterranean diet, lower sodium intake, see what happens. You can add potassium in, instead of sodium. You can buy this stuff called New Salt, N-U-S-A-L-T, New Salt. It's actually potassium chloride. Potassium has been shown in studies to lower uh, blood pressure. Um, so if you substitute that out or use half and half, it's better for you. Other things that lower um, blood pressure, like I said, is a Mediterranean-style diet. Fruits and vegetables, things with potassium in it, kiwis, you know, citrusy cut kind of stuff, and obviously reducing salt intake um, with whatever diet you choose, fiber, you know, all that stuff, kind of like a Mediterranean diet, nuts, fruits, fiber, whatever. Um, now, the, the place that I usually start with people who have high blood pressure is I usually start with a medication called lisinopril. Lisinopril is an ACE inhibitor. There's also captopril, benazapril, ramapril, I don't know, lots of different prils, quinapril. The most potent one, you know, milligram for milligram with the most blood pressure lowering effects is lisinopril. The other ones are okay. There's enalapril that's kind of similar. But ramapril, even at the highest dose, which is only 10 milligrams, only lowers your systolic blood pressure by like three points. So it's good for other things, it's just not good for blood pressure, whereas lisinopril significantly lowers blood pressure. Um, depending on how much they need, how much blood pressure lowering they need, it's usually dosed as once a day because it's very long-acting. Are there occasions where we tell someone, you know what, fine, just take one in the morning, one at night? Yeah, absolutely, but generally it's once a day. Now, lisinopril comes from the viper of a venom snake, the pit viper. That's literally how we discovered it. Pit Viper would bite you, inject a bunch of ACE inhibitor into you, your blood pressure drops, your organs don't get enough blood flow, they don't get enough oxygen, they don't get whatever, and you die, right? We cannot tell people to buy a Pit Viper and use that as a medication, because one day it's going to kill you. We need to be able to dose it. Like all medications, almost all cardiac medications, come from nature. This is one of them. So we purify the molecule, the lisinopril, we put it in a pill form so we can dose it, and so that we don't kill you. Now, the only issue with lisinopril, two things. One, which is more common, three to nine percent of people, maybe, depending on the study, will get this dry hacking cough. And it's a weird cough. We don't know when you're gonna get it. People do get it. Some people have been like on lisinopril for years and like suddenly start getting this dry hacking cough. Now, a lot of times it's something else. It's bronchitis, it's wheezing, they have COPD, asthma, whatever. Just make sure it's not any of those things. Don't just blow it off. But definitely, if they get a dry hacking cough and they've checked all the other stuff, it's probably the lisinopril uh, or that whole class, ACE inhibitors. You can change it. Um, the other issue is some people get this thing called angioedema, which is a mouth, lip, tongue swelling this is a life-threatening emergency. If you get this, please go to the emergency room and you need to be treated 
It's like an anaphylactic reaction. You can never be on these medications again. If you get the cough, we can stop the medicine, switch it to something else, see how you do. If the cough goes away, we can restart the medicine to kind of see if it comes back to see if it really was the medicine. With angioedema, no. If you get angioedema, get the hell to an ER, let them fix you, treat you, watch you, whatever, and then we'll move on from there. But you will never be on ACE inhibitors ever again. That's a life-threatening emergency. In the old days, we used to tell people that African-Americans should not be on lisinopril or ACE inhibitors. We used to think they had more angioedema than the general public. More recent meta-analyses have shown that that's not true. If you want to avoid it, that's fine. But generally, that is not true. The next place I usually start with patients is you can is um, the opposite of ACE inhibitors, which are ARBs, ARBs. The ACE inhibitor works on one end of the receptor. The ARB works on the other end. These are like losartan. And I usually just start with losartan. There's telmosartan. There's a bunch of them. Um, but losartan is easy to dose. It's you know equivalent to lisinopril in its efficacy. That would be like if somebody had the cough from lisinopril, we'd stop lisinopril and we'd switch them to losartan, see if the cough goes away, then re-challenge them with lisinopril. Because ARBs are not superior to ACEs. ACEs are superior in every way. Like every study that's ever been done on heart failure or blood pressure, like, you know, whatever, any studies that's ever been done, ACE inhibitors have always been like the top. And ARBs came along, which are on the other end of the receptor, to see if they could challenge uh, ACEs they found to be not inferior, but there's definitely not superior. And this is just maybe uh, a uh, technicality in, in medical research. Maybe if you don't know enough about medical research, there's different ways of doing studies. You can pr- try to prove superiority, which is a very high bar to prove. If you, had to, if you brought on a new medication and you want to prove that it's better than lisinopril, it's a very difficult bar to prove. So a lot of times they'll design studies to just show non-inferiority where it's not superior, but it's also not in, not that much inferior. You know, it's not equivalent, but it's not that much inferior. So it's kind of like saying, we know it's not better, but it's probably like the next best thing. You know, it's kind of a way to put it. So losartan would be my second option. Now, if the patient's blood pressure does not get down enough, the next best thing to add would be a low-dose uh, chlorothiazide. Like you could use hydrochlorothiazide, chlorothaldone, and dapamide, any of those, those would be excellent medications. Um, and dapamide, should, we don't, so the ones that we generally use are chlorothaldone or hydrochlorothiazide. Very rarely do we use anything else. And dapamide is one of them that is not much of a diuretic. Um, it's more of a vasodilator. But same thing with hydrochlorothiazide and chlorothaldone. People think they're thiazide diuretic, so they're like, oh my God, there's a water pill. Yes and no, it's a little bit of a water pill. It has some of that effect, especially the first two or three days that you're on it. You might notice more diuresis than usual. It dumps sodium, which really helps. If somebody can't adopt a low-sodium diet, then a hydrochlorothiazide would really help. Even at a low dose, like 6.25 or 6.5, 12.5, you know, whatever. Usually, I'll, I'll personally never start less than uh, 25. If I'm going to put you on hydrochlorothiazide, I want to know what the full dose does. The problem with it is that it's more diabetogenic at higher doses. At the six and a quarter dose, it's not that diabetogenic, 12 and a half, a little more, 25, yes. No one should be more on like 25. There should be nobody on 50. There should be nobody on 25 twice a day, 50 twice a day, like none of that. It's just way too much. Also in old people, you probably don't want to put them on hydrochlorothiazide. They dump sodium, they get confused, they have all kinds of issues. So old people, I try to avoid it or I use it in conjunction with lisinopril or losartan and at a lower dose. 
because you get a huge reduction in blood pressure when you combine a ACE inhibitor or a ARB with hydrochlorothiazide, with chlorothaldone. The studies, the, all the studies that have been done were done with chlorothaldone, but we use hydrochlorothiazide because it's just more available and just easier. But either one. Um, but definitely I would use a low dose, start there and kind of titrate to effect. As a cardiologist, by the time they end up with me, they're probably going to end up on just 25. I'm not going to mess around with the six and a quarter or 12 and a half. They're just going to end up on 25, see how they do, watch it in sodium a little bit, and then go from there. Now, with ACEs and ARBs, initially, we used to check potassiums a lot, and it just tells you how far back I go. We used to check potassium, you know, a week or so later, just to make sure it's not causing any, like, renal issues. Those are kind of the mainstay of blood pressure medications. The rest of the medications do also lower blood pressure, but not as much. But I'll get into some of them. First, let's talk about the ones that do lower blood pressure. You guys will be surprised at beta blockers that don't generally use for blood pressure, especially certain ones unless they have certain disease conditions, but we've even gotten away from that. But let me start with the ones that are known to reduce blood pressure. So next is a medication called hydralazine. 25, 50, 100 milligrams, three times a day. That's the issue. The nice thing about hydralazine is it doesn't kill your kidney function. So if they can't be on lisinopril or losartan because they have bad kidneys, you can put them on hydralazine instead. That's a, a very good option uh, in, that, in that case. Um, that would work. There's another medication that's a potent vasodilator called minoxidil. We usually use that as a last resort when all else kind of fails. The next set of medications will be the beta blockers that actually do lower blood pressure. And it's almost all of them. We're talking like carvedilol, nibevilol, bisoprolol, uh, labetalol, propranolol. All of the beta blockers do lower your blood pressure except two that have almost no blood pressure lowering effects whatsoever. That would be atenolol and metoprolol. They are very beta-1 specific and have almost zero blood pressure lowering effects. Now, they could lower your blood pressure kind of in a roundabout way by um, reducing your heart rate. They mainly reduce your heart rate, and because your stroke volume or like the blood going forward has a lot to do with how many beats per minute you have, that could, in a roundabout way, lower your blood pressure. Not very effectively so. Like, what happens is I get a lot of patients where, you know, they're on like 100 metoprolol twice a day. And I'm like, you know, what are you taking this for? You're like 30 years old. You've never had a heart attack. You've never had, like, heart failure. Like, none of these other conditions that require this. Why are you on this? And they're like, uh, for blood pressure. I'm like, okay, this is not a good option for blood pressure. Let's put you on something that a young person should be on. Um, and that would probably be like lisinopril. Because there's no fatigue, there's no diabetes. Like the problem with beta blockers too is they're diabetogenic. So you got hydrochlorothiazide, the thiazide diuretics, and beta blockers that are a little bit diabetogenic. Now, some of these beta blockers have more effects. Like carvedilol is an alpha-1 dilator, which also uh, directly lowers blood pressure. Same with like labetalol, nebevilol, um, and, and uh some of these other ones have some nitric oxide releasing effects, which also directly, you know, lower blood pressure as well. But generally speaking, in a young person, you do not want to put them on beta blockers. First of all, there's weight gain because they blunt your adrenaline, right? Just think about it that way. You need energy. You need, you don't want to be fatigued. You don't, it, it, it can blunt your libido. They can blunt your energy levels. You have no energy. You're depressed. You're fatigued. You're tired all the time. Like it, it has a lot of, the higher the dose, obviously the worse. But even at, you know, lower starting doses, you don't want to like get, uh, you know, into beta blockers 
in young people. Now, if they've had heart failure or coronary artery disease, absolutely, they need to be on metoprolol succinate or carvedilol for heart failure. Beta blockers and coronary artery disease post heart attack, we do recommend, but we're getting away from that, you know, kind of long term. Once they demonstrate that they're fine and they're doing okay, we've found that it isn't as helpful as we once thought, right? So that's that. The next class I'll cover is calcium channel blockers. There's two kinds of calcium channel blockers. There's dihydropyridones, like the amylodipine, nicardipine, nifedipine, all the peens, and there's non-dihydropyridones. These are like the verapamil and cardizem. Those are the only two, diltiazem and verapamil. Diltiazem and verapamil work mainly like uh, beta blockers, especially metoprolol. They're more like AV nodal blocking agents, which just slow your heart down more than anything. They do have some vasodilatory effects and can lower your pressure a little, but generally speaking, they are mostly a heart rate lowering medication. That's why you put people on cardizem drips um, for AFib and stuff like that. But generally, I don't use those for uh, blood pressure lowering at all because they're not that good at it. Uh, Diltiazem has been shown in studies to be slightly better for atrial flutter or MAT. Um, than other medications, but generally speaking, they're interchangeable with um, uh, beta blockers like metoprolol and atenolol. However, verapamil really shouldn't be used at all. It's an older medication, has way too many weird side effects. They use it for migraines now really more than anything, and it's definitely not a good blood pressure-lowering medication. So it does a little bit, but you don't want to be using that. Now getting to the dihydropyridones, these are like your nifedipines, nicardipines, amylodipine, you know, those all do work for blood pressure lowering. The best, the one we use the most commonly is amylodipine because it's easy to dose, two and a half, five, ten, and it's once a day dosing instead of like every, you know, two, three times a day or what have you. So it works really, really well. That would be um, like Norvasc or this is the brand name, but it's amylodipine 10. Usually by the time they get to me, I'm starting them on 10. So sometimes we'll do like lisinopril 10, a little bit of hydrochlorothiazide and amylodipine, depending on how much we need to lower their pressure now. We don't always recommend putting everybody on two or three meds right off the bat, depending on how much you need to lower their pressure or how long it's been elevated. You know, there's a lot of factors at play. And as time goes on and you read more, you'll probably understand some of those things. So definitely it's not a, uh, uh, right off the bat, you're on three medications kind of deal. Like I said, minoxidil is a very potent vasodilator and we use that kind of as a last resort or if we don't have any other options, they have bad kidneys, they have bad liver, they have bad this, they have bad that, you know, 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 they got all this stuff. Yeah, in that case, something like minoxidil would work. Um, One interesting side effect of minoxidil is that it actually causes hair growth. So for all you guys out there that are um, losing hair, you might want to be on minoxidil. You lower your blood pressure and keep all your hair or regrow hair, whatever it might be. Um, another medications uh, that we could use for this would be would be like the, let's say, spironolactone, a player known, and the new one, I forgot the name of it. Um, those would be for somebody who has a, they, they do raise your potassium, so you want to be careful with those. But the, the times that I use those, they're not first line. If somebody has heart failure, they should, really be on them no matter what. They definitely reduce rehospitalizations and all kinds of things with heart failure. This is not a heart failure talk, so we'll just talk about blood pressure. But if somebody has primary hyperaldosteronism, adding spironolactone 25 or 50 is life-changing. 
And the way you know they have that is you, you got to do all these crazy tests. You don't need to do it. If they, have a, if they have a chronically low potassium, they're always like 3.1, 2.9, 3.2, 3.3. They're always been low their whole lives. And they have really difficult to control blood pressure. They get sent to me because like, doc, we put them on everything. Nothing's working. So a spironolactone in that situation would make a huge deal. Um, so keep that one in mind. If you, you, the, the mind, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. So if you never heard of spironolactone, now 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 you have, or not not spironolactone. You never heard of high, primary hyperaldosteronism. Now you have, and you know to watch out for it. Really low potassium would difficult to control blood pressure. Spironolactone, wean them off the other stuff. It should make a difference. The other medication that I don't like to use a lot. People use clonidine as a pill. It kind of sucks um, because it, it it works really really fast. Like if you ever need to lower somebody's pressure really quickly, nitro under the tongue or clonidine or even hydralazine, you know, those lower your pressure quickly. If you don't have an IV, you could use those. Nitro under the tongue is probably the fastest Then clonidine and hydralazine. But clonidine, it's too, it's very centrally acting. It really affects your mind. It sedates you almost. It gets, it crosses the blood brain barrier. It has just too many weird side effects. I don't use that if, unless I have to, and I would not give it as a pill. Because when you take it, it really crashes your blood pressure. And then hours later, your blood pressure is like 220. It has way too much of a rebound effect. Hydralazine kind of does too, but that's why we dose it three times a day. But definitely I would not put somebody on pill version clonidine unless I absolutely had to. I, I get sent way too many patients and that on those kind of things too. The best way to put that one on would be the patch. There's a 24-hour, you know, very long-acting patch. That's what I would do uh, in that case. Um, the next class, let me think, what are we missing here? Uh, I talked about hydralazine, minoxidil. Oh, if somebody's pregnant, this is a good one. So if somebody's pregnant, you can use beta blockers if you need to. Labetalol is the one that has been quote unquote tested. That's the one you should use, but you could also use something called methyl dopa. It is a alpha two, um, receptor agonist. Let's put it that way. And it can, vasodilate your arteries. It's kind of like a vasodilator, I guess. Um, it's sort of similar to clonidine. It is a little bit centrally acting too, which is in your brain. Um, the alpha-2 receptors are generally in the brain, um, which do send signals to the rest of your body to kind of lower your blood pressure and heart rate. So they're a little bit on the sedating side, but they are approved in uh, pregnancy. The Not, not the clonidine, the methyl dopa. Um, another group we forgot, Definitely, I don't know how we forgot this, but they're called alpha blockers. These are really, really old medications, but they're they target just the alpha receptors. These are like your prazosin, terazosin, doxazin. They always end in an O Z S I N. Those work. I don't use them that much because I I kind of use like amlodipine or carvedilol more um, because my patients are usually cardiac. But those are good ones. And then and a nice side effect of those is they treat um, BPH. Uh, prosthetic, benign prosthetic hypertrophy. If you have an enlarged prostate, they kind of like allow you to pee more and, you know, it does not as affected, you know, it kind of does that. So it has a little bit of um, effect there. Um, I think that's probably it in terms of pills and medications you can take as, as well as my overall uh, philosophy of how to check your blood pressure, when to put people on these. Now, obviously there's a lot of conditions. We kind of talked about them where somebody needs to be on one, but not the other, and they can't be on one, their kidneys are bad, their liver is bad, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we've covered most of that. Generally, if a patient's on not being controlled by by one medication, you probably want to send them to a cardiologist. 
if you if it's looking like they need two, unless it's like just lisinopril hydrochlorothiazide, no big deal. If you're a primary doctor, primary nurse practitioner, PA, uh, physician's assistant, and they are doing everything right, they're doing the diet, reducing salt, exercising, fruits, fibers, you know, all the Mediterranean stuff that I'm always talking about. If they're doing all that right and you got them on lisinopril and hydrochlorothiazide, you know, like a 10 slash 25 or 10 slash 12 and a half, really low dose, that's fine. You probably don't need to see a cardiologist. But if it starts getting tricky and you're escalating the doses and their pressures aren't getting better and their potassium is low and all that, then yeah, you they probably have primary hyperaldosteronism or some other genetic you know, thing going on. Those ones I would definitely send to a cardiologist or even a nephrologist, especially if they're having potassium kind of issues. Um, we're pretty good at fixing that. Or if they're having like heart failure-like symptoms. So that's my approach to blood pressure medications and treatments. Um, this topic was actually suggested to me by Andrew. Andrew is in our community. He is a fantastic member of the community. We talk about this stuff pretty much every day. Um, He suggested an in-depth review uh, podcast on this topic. If you want to join the community, it's drallo.net slash community. If you use the code one month, one and then all caps, M-O-N-T-H, one month, um, the number one and then month, all caps, you will get in for free. You can join us. We do weekly live Zooms. We talk about this kind of stuff all day and all night. Andrew calls it the real longevity stuff. You know, all the other stuff out there is pretty much nonsense and somebody just trying to sell you a dream. We talk about real cardiac longevity for hours and hours a week. You also get access to all of our previous recordings. You can go back and listen to all the other recordings. And I'm sure there's a topic that's been covered. You can read the um, synopsis and see if you want to watch that one or not. We get bullet points, summaries, reviews, even the transcripts. You can read them. Um, but no, you'll really like it. DrAllo.net slash community. That's D-R-A-L-O.net slash community. I would love to see you on the inside of the community. Peace.